Today, what I'm going to share with you actually was birthed out of personal struggle. Sometimes in our Christian walk, well, in fact, most of the time, we actually are called to hold tensions of the kingdom in our hands. There is what we would like to see happening, and then there is what we what actually is happening. And sometimes those don't meet very well, but, and that's because when we walk this journey of kingdom life, we're actually living in the now of the kingdom coming now and the not yet of the kingdom still coming in its fullness. So some of what I'm going to share to you is some of the not so easy bits about walking this Christian life. We've recently, just at the beginning of this year, Kirk shared the church vision with us, which is summed up as one love on display. And the three pillars of that are unity, authority, and enlarging our territory. And you know, we can already see God blessing that vision because there has already been increase. We've already seen favor on the lives of people in our church, and we've seen an increase of the things of God starting already. But the tension of that is that amongst us, there are also those who are going through a lot of pain and struggling at the moment. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 26 says that if we're operating well as a body, so in unity as the body of Christ, then we all have equal concern for each other. And so when one part is honoured, we all rejoice for that part. And when one part is suffering, we all suffer with that part. And so my question today is how do we do that? Because it's a like-mindedness, it's a unity, it's about being like-minded in spirit as a church when we walk in suffering with those who are suffering. And my struggle has been that I've actually been overwhelmed by the amount of pain and suffering that I've seen around me lately, um, particularly people in the church, particularly Christians. And so I've been wrestling with that with God and working out how we deal with the things where there are no easy answers. The book of Job has really inspired me in this. It's, it's a book of poetry, actually, um, and it's written in the way that um, you can kind of imagine a little operetta. So we have Job going like, woe is me, you know, this is, this is my life, it's so terrible, and then you have somebody answering in another little poetic speech going, well, Job, listen to my wisdom and this is what I have to say to you and this is da 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 And then Job answers, well, you haven't really thought about this and I've also got this and this going on. And then the friend, another friend answers. And so it's kind of this staged theatrical poem of, of wrestling with suffering. And it actually doesn't answer the why question of suffering, but it does give dignity to suffering in that 
I mean, it is credited as one of the most masterful expressions of pain that we actually have in literature. It's a beautiful expression of pain. And what we do through the book of Job is we get to walk the journey of suffering. And we get to find the things about suffering that Job learns as we get to his, get through his journey and to the end where God actually intervenes. So this is how the story starts. It starts with Satan kind of sauntering up to God and going, and God actually says, where have you just come from? And Satan says, I've been roaming the earth, checking it out. And, jo- and God says, ah, well, you'll have seen my servant Job then. He is such a fine man, so upright. He always shuns evil. And Satan says, well, of course he does, because you have blessed him so much. Just take away the blessings and watch him curse you. So God says, okay, let's put that to the test. Next minute, bam, Job gets hit. All his animals are stolen, and the servant comes running to Job, saying, they've all gone, that we've been raided, and all the oxen are gone, all the donkeys are gone. Next thing, the sheep are burned up in a freak fire, and the servant comes running, and, and then next thing, the camels are all gone, because there's been another raid, and the servant says, everybody was killed except me, and I came to tell you the news. So that is all of Job's wealth. Animals were wealth in that day. Next thing, a servant comes running up to Job. Bam! Job, all of your children have just died. The house collapsed on them while they were all feasting in the one house and and no one has survived except me to come and tell you this news. Devastation. And Job falls on his face and he's woeful and he's grieving, but he still says, you know... Naked I've come onto this earth and naked I will leave. And the Lord has the right to give and the Lord has the right to take away. Let his name be praised. So Satan saunters up to God again and says, okay. Yes, so Job passed that test. But if you touch his person, if if you touch his own body, he will curse you. And And God says, okay. Let's test that. You may touch his body, but you may not take his life. Bam! Job gets hit with boils all over his body. So not only has he lost everything, but now his body is just collapsing on him. And Job's friends hear about this awful, awful news, and they come to visit him to comfort him. When they arrive, they don't even recognize the man Job. And they just do what is traditional in that time. And they just wail loudly with him and they tear their clothes and they sit on the ground and throw dust on themselves and they mourn with Job for seven days, they mourn. And there they all sit in silence for seven days just processing what's gone on. And then after seven days of silence, Job breaks the silence and he opens his mouth to speak. And the first thing he says is, curse the day that I was born. I wish I had rather died 
on that day. Now, anyone who here who has suffered pain will actually resonate with the words of Job. If you read through the book of Job, there is so much that he says that is real. It's, a, it's the real things that we feel when we feel pain and suffering. And Job says, what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. This is suffering. Job's friends are with him, and so when Job speaks, they feel compelled to answer. And so they answer him with nice, neat, packaged little explanations of why he's suffering, of which the bottom line is, Job, really, you must have sinned, because otherwise you wouldn't be suffering in this way. So just confess your sin and everything will be all right. Now, that really was the thinking of the day. So they lived very much under, if you do the right thing, you'll be blessed. If you do the wrong thing, you'll be cursed. So it was the thinking of the day. The only problem is, Job said to them, I, I mean, I know God is a holy judge and I know that he is all-knowing, but... I can't think of anything that I've done to rebel against God. I, I can't think of why I might deserve this punishment. In fact, I think my life has been quite the opposite of that. I have actually devoted my life to living in friendship with God. So I don't think that there's any sin for me to, to confess. And so we go through chapter after chapter of Job and his friends and then Job and his friends and his friends are just more and more insistent. Job, really, come on now, just, you know, spit it out. What is it that you've done? You must have sinned. It can't be any other way. Come on. Until eventually their, their speeches between each other get more and more heated and eventually one of his friends says, does God twist justice? And then later he says, a wise man, Job, wouldn't answer with such empty talk. You are nothing but a windbag. Have you no fear of God, no reverence for him? Your sins are telling your mouth what to say. Your words are based on clever deception. The wicked writhe in pain through their lives. Years of trouble are stored up for the ruthless. Wouldn't you like friends like that? <laughs> And in reality, I mean, we do actually get friends who, with the best of intentions in our time of pain, come to us and do offer nice, neat little packages of explanation for why we're going through pain. It's the kind of friend that will kind of go, you know, they're there, they'll give you that patronising pat on the back and say, it's all going to be okay. Don't worry, everything will turn out in the end. Usually that is a sign of someone who's actually intimidated by pain. And it's really hard for them to enter into our pain with us. And so what we would call those people is sympathetic rather than empathetic. But Jesus calls us to be empathetic people because he's an empathetic God. 
There's a research professor and author named Brené Brown who has this fabulous analogy of the difference between empathy and sympathy. She says it's like this. Someone's found themselves in a deep hole and they're saying, help me, I'm stuck and I can't think of any way to get out of this hole. Someone who has empathy will say, I'm going to climb down there with you and I'm going to show you that you're not alone down there. I don't know what to say right now, but I'm just so glad that you told me. An empathizer will recognize that emotion in somebody else and they'll feel that emotion with them. And that's actually a very vulnerable place to find ourselves in because it actually means that we have to find a place of pain in our own hearts to be able to relate to that emotion that the other person is feeling and then communicate that back to them. The sympathizer will go to the top of the hole and go, oh, that looks bad. <laughs> you see there? Do you want a sandwich? <laughs> and they'll keep talking from the top of the hole. But sympathizers tend to want to find the silver lining, try and make things better than they actually are. And so they will often use these at least statements. Someone tells the sympathizer, oh, you know what, my marriage is really on the rocks. And they'll go, oh, well, at least you have a marriage. Or they'll say, you know, someone says, oh, you know, my son just got kicked out of school. And the sympathizer will go, oh, that's not very nice. Oh, well, at least your daughter's getting straight A's. <laughs> Trying to make things better. Empathy drives connection with people. Sympathy drives disconnection with people. And I think in our church, if we're looking at unity, we're wanting to be empathizers here. We're wanting to learn how to connect with people. And I have to say, I read and listened to this stuff on sympathizing, and I go, yeah, yeah, I've done that. I've definitely used those at least statements. Definitely. And it's interesting because empathizing is a lot more hard work, but it is more healing at the end of the day. And in this church, we want to see people healed as they come into relationship with us and then ultimately with Jesus. So Job's friends are sitting on the edge of the hole with their feet dangling in, looking down at Job. And they're throwing in all their advice and they're telling him to confess his sins. And Job is saying, no, but you're not hearing me. And they're kind of pretending that they haven't not heard him because if they had to listen to him, it would actually change their whole nice little idea of how God works and that wouldn't work for them. So, so they're not very empathetic. So in the absence of empathizers, Job is still stuck in his hole, feeling more lonely and lost than ever. But let's just say we were there with Job and let's just say we did empathize with him. Say we were really good empathizers and we sat with him and we grieved with him and we heard his story and his feelings and, and we were with him in spirit. What then? 
What about the unanswered questions? What do you do with those? Job insists that he has done nothing to deserve the suffering that he is experiencing. And many of us here, that's our situation. We actually are in pain, we are suffering, and there isn't anything that we have done to deserve that. And I just want to confirm that because I think some people here need to hear that if something's going in your wrong, in, wrong in your life, it doesn't mean you're being punished. That actually bad things do happen to good people. Life is unfair, and that's thanks to Satan in our world. Job is in this place of unfair suffering, and all he wants to do is not stay silent about it, talk about it, but he also wants to argue his case with whoever is responsible, and he's attributing that to God right now, and he really wants to argue his case with God. But he also understands in his thinking that God is also the, the all-wise and the all-powerful God, and so he doesn't really make mistakes, so there's a bit of a dilemma. Do you dare to approach God then and tell him he's made a mistake? He says in chapter 9, verse 32 to 35, God is not a mortal like me, so I cannot argue with him or take him to trial. If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. The mediator could make God stop beating me. Be aware, of course, that Job had misinterpreted the situation. And I would no longer live in terror of punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear, but I cannot do that in my own strength. Is this ringing any bells for you? Does it sound a little bit like Jesus? Here's the interesting thing, is that the writer of Job wrote Job long, long before the, the idea of Jesus even existed on the earth. It was long before even the law was given to God's chosen people to tell them how to relate to God. And it was long before the prophets started talking about a redemption plan for the people of God. So what I get from that is that Job, in his, when it comes down to the very everything being stripped away and just him left, what he needs is somebody to talk to God for him. He doesn't know anything about Satan. It seems his friends are not even aware of Satan at this stage. But what he needs is access to God to relieve him from the pain. And I think that is how we are wired, actually. If this writer was knowing in his, as he's writing this poetry that what we actually need is some way to communicate with this great big God out there, we're wired for that. When everything spins out of control, that's what we're going to go back to. And Job, in his desperation for someone to hear him and to understand, says a few times, it's dotted through the whole of the book of Job, all these little phrases, if we can have that coming up. Job 14, verse 13 and 17. 
If only, God, you would hide me in the grave until your anger has passed. My sins would be sealed in a pouch and you would cover my guilt. Job 16, 19. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is there on high. Job 16, 21. I need someone to mediate between God and me as a person mediates between friends. Job 17.3, you must defend my innocence, O God, since no one else will stand up for me. And then I love this one. I can't believe that this would come out of someone who has no idea about Jesus. Job 19.25, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer, the person who's going to get me out of this, lives. And he will stand upon the earth where I can access him at last. Job 19.27, I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. Well, of course we know now that yes, our Redeemer does live. And he did stand upon the earth. And he is all that Job was crying out for in his pain. If we shift on in history, right, ahead off to after Jesus... Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16, says this. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So different to Job. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive, not punishment, his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Jesus is the mediator that Job was crying out for. And we know we need that mediator. Romans 3.23 tells us that everyone has fallen short of the glorious standard of God. But then that beautiful verse, John 3.16, tells us, but God so loved the world that he sent Jesus so that we don't have to die, but we can live. Jesus can seal our sins in a pouch and cover our guilt. It's through Jesus that we can approach the great big God on our behalf so that we can live and not die in his holy presence. Jesus is our witness in heaven and our advocate on high. And Jesus will defend our innocence. He, met, he died to make sure of that. He will defend our innocence and stand up for us. I think that Job, in seeking the counsel of God through his suffering and his pain, he actually gained wisdom. And I don't know that he even realized it, but all these things that he's saying about a mediator, that was revelation from heaven as he was seeking God in the suffering. I just want to emphasize that God never wills suffering for us, but He is the kind of God that can turn suffering around for his good purposes. The deeper the pain and the suffering that we go into, the greater the opportunity there is to see God operating in ways that we would never otherwise see. And so sometimes it's in pain and suffering that we get 
fresh revelation. A wise woman once taught me this. Her name is Judy Briscoe, and she wrote a book called Don't Fight the Pain, Let It Drive You Deeper Into Him. So when it comes to our friends, what we want is to be gently directing them towards Jesus. That's the best service we can offer them. And how do we do that? Well, it can be a really simple line. Can I pray for you? And as we pray for them, we direct their gaze to Jesus. And then we listen for what Jesus might be wanting to speak to them of his love, of his life, of his goodness, of his faithfulness, of his healing. And maybe, like me, sometimes you struggle with hearing God in the moment. Then soak yourself in the truth of what he's already revealed to us in his word, the Bible. And so that when you're praying for your friends, call to mind those truths that you've read about. And the Holy Spirit will direct the things that you remember as you're praying for your friend. It might be the truth that he loves them. It might be the truth that he knows the number of hairs on their head. It might be the truth that he will never leave them. It might be the truth that he loves to be found by us. It might be the truth that he calls us by name. And it might be the truth that he's a life giver. And it might be so many more things. In the end, God does actually grant Job what he asks for. He gets a private hearing with God. And what follows is some of the most magnificent poetry describing God. But before we read some of that, I'm gonna, we're going to watch a quick video. It's from YouTube and it's called 209 Seconds That Will Make You Question Your Entire Existence. I'm going to read you what, Job, what God answered Job. Some excerpts from Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered from the whirlwind, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you ever seen the gates of utter gloom? 
Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from and where does darkness go to? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this, for you were born before it was all created and you are so very experienced. God goes on and there's, I mean, I encourage you to read that yourself. But And he asks Job a whole lot of questions that obviously Job can't answer. And Job's response is just really short. He's dumbstruck and he just says, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes and I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Even though this is poetry, I do think it captures the heart of God and that is that God wants to be known by us. He doesn't condemn Job for all of his, you know, expression of his pain. And he also, interestingly, doesn't tell Job about Satan's part in the whole thing. Because I think to know God and to know how very great and vast and magnificent he is makes all other things fade in comparison. And God wants Job to know how very great and powerful he is and how he knows the details of every created thing and how he also knows the details of Job. Our God wants to be known in his fullness. In fact, we know now that he wanted it so desperately that he compressed all of his creator of the universe greatness into one teeny tiny human package that was birthed onto the earth through the Virgin Mary, all so that he could be with us and do life with us and know us and we know him. And so he called himself Emmanuel, God with us. Sometimes our pain and our suffering lead us to these fresh revelations of who God really is. And that brings fresh hope in the midst of the pain. We don't need to beg and plead for a redeemer because we already have access to the throne of God without needing to be afraid. And so when our friends who are in pain and are suffering need support and we have empathized with them, and we have directed them towards Jesus, the next thing we do is we remember that we are not God. God is the one who saves. He's the healer. He's the fixer. He's the rescuer. We can do things to help along the way, and God loves it when we do that, to love each other. But real healing and real transformation and the refreshing of the soul comes from him. He is God. We are not. And it's that revelation of who God is that helped various characters through the Bible in their most painful times. David, when he was running for his life, could still praise God because he was aware, he knew God. Stephen, the disciple, um, could in the midst of 
Jewish leaders being infuriated for him to the point of stoning him to death, which they ultimately did, Stephen stood in the middle of that and said, I see the Son of God at the right hand of a Son of God at the right hand of God, and he's in the place of honor. Paul talked about this thorn in his side that just never went away, and we don't know what it is. Maybe an eye impairment, maybe a speech impediment. But he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but then he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Revelation, fresh revelation in the midst of suffering, right there in our painful place, right there in that hole we find ourselves in, right there in the financial difficulty that we have, Jesus brings fresh revelation of his provision. Right there in that place of hopelessness where a child or a loved one has walked away from us, he brings fresh revelation of his father heart. Right there in the place where our emotions have taken us to despair and darkness, Jesus creates a spark that gives us hope to keep going and understand how close he actually is to us and how his spirit comforts us. Right there in sickness, he brings revelation of how he is the author of life right there and how can he do that because right there in his greatest moment of pain when he was dying the cruelest death that a human can die he had revelation of the father's love and he said father forgive him for they don't know what they're doing and his revelation of where he was going to the resurrection coming and death being defeated helped him walk through the pain and the suffering to victory when we can see God in our place of pain, then we can start to know him. And when we know him, we start to experience his encouragement, his healing, his wisdom, and his comfort, even if our circumstances don't change. Job's circumstances at the end of the poem do change, and he has a happily ever after story. And he does end up being more abundantly blessed than he ever was. But our circumstances in reality, we know sometimes they don't change. But our pain can bring us to that place of being more intimately connected with Jesus than we've ever been before. And being connected with Jesus means that we grow and we change and we move more and more into being that victorious church that he created us to be. We are one body. We display one love when we are like-minded, when we operate in unity, when we rejoice together, and when we suffer together. How do we suffer together with our friends, we empathize with them. We connect with them on a very real level. Then we gently direct them to Jesus. And we realize we are not God. 
that Jesus wants to be known by them. And we ask Jesus for fresh revelation for them. And we keep doing that as long as it takes. We know that no problem is too great for our very awesome God because he has a bigger perspective of the situation than either we or our friends do. So, let's stay real with each other and let's be unified in our like-mindedness.